The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. As we're unpacking this mystery, the mystery of the Magi, last week in part one, we began our journey in Rome, the northern part of Rome, down in the catacombs, some of the most ancient Christian art, and we started our journey there, but this week we've got to go to another city. We've got to travel to to a city in Germany, the city of Cologne. And in this city of Cologne, on on the skyline is a particular cathedral. It's called the Cathedral of Cologne. It is the tallest cathedral in the world. It stands well over 500 feet tall. And if you go inside this cathedral, you will see the most awe-striking, soaring ceilings of maybe any cathedral in the world. And the idea is to take your attention and to throw it so high into the air to take your breath away as to the grandeur of God. But at the back of this cathedral, actually in the very front, in the most pinnacle place over the altar, there's this one box. It's a golden shrine. It's sealed in a, in a glass container because it's ancient. And that golden shrine, it's right there at the focal point of this church. It's right there over the altar. And with all of the medieval art in this entire church, it's this particular piece of art that has the focal point of this, the largest cathedral in the world. It's called the Shrine of the Three Kings. And according to ancient legend, a legend that goes back about a thousand years, a thousand years ago, and and more like uh, maybe like 900 years ago, this particular golden box, the, the contents were brought to this cathedral. And according to legend, inside that large box are the bones of the three kings that came to visit Jesus that night. Now you say, that man, that sounds crazy. How could these possibly, how could these, this golden box, how could that possibly carry their bones? How do they, they know such a thing? How could such a relic exist like the bones of such important figures? Especially when you consider the fact that around the Middle Ages, that was a time in history when churches all over, cathedrals all over to bring themselves credibility, claimed that they had relics. And so all of a sudden, church over here in Europe had claimed that they had the actual crown of thorns. And this church over here in Europe claimed that they actually had the swaddling cloths that Jesus was laid in. And this church over here said they had a piece of the actual cross. And this church over here claimed they had a vial of Jesus' blood. And, and um, in fact, four different churches claim that they have the actual skull of John the Baptist. There's a period in the Middle Ages when uh, collecting relics was huge. It was super important, and people all over uh, were collecting these relics and taking them to their church. But there's something interesting about this particular relic, the Shrine of the Three Kings. It's that the legend goes back long before it was popular and the trend to collect relics. And according to the legend, it was in the 4th century when Queen Helena, the mother of Constantine, went on search for the remains of the three kings. 
And what was recorded in history at that time is that the three kings went um, after their journey of seeing Jesus. They all came and they were at one particular spot just thinking about this incredible occasion that they had to see uh, baby Jesus. And they decided to build a chapel and they made the agreement that they would all go their separate ways, but that they would come back to this chapel and all be buried there. And according to legend, that's what happened. In the fourth century, uh, apparently Helena, mother of Constantine, traveled to that chapel in the east, exhumed their remains, brought them back, the remains back to Constantinople. A couple hundred years later, those under the, a new emperor, they were taken over to Milan, where they stayed there in Italy for a few hundred years. And then in 1100s, this at least this part we know is, for, is true, these bones were taken from Milan to Cologne in Germany. Now you say, look, there's no way that's true. Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, long ago, not, not too long ago, when they opened these, this box and it had the sarcophagi, the, the boxes that the bones were in, and they were examining these artifacts, they found some cloth, sh shroud, that was still remaining that had wrapped these bones in. And modern scientists have looked at these and they found two interesting things about these shreds of cloth. One is that the dye is from Phoenicia. That's in the east. So it's not that these bones were from, and the fabric was not from Milan, it was from the east. And the fabric itself was very old, dated back to the second century, uh, which would make it older than Helena. So what does that mean? Does that mean that these are the bones of the three kings there in Germany and Cologne? Almost certainly not. <laughs> Almost certainly not. Uh, why? Because what we discovered last week, for starters, is they weren't even three kings. And in fact, if you knew the other history of uh, Constantine's mom and some of the legends surrounding Helena, you'd know this is just one of another very fanciful legend around this woman. But what does that tell us? It tells us a couple things. For starters, this particular group of men who came from the east, as recorded in Matthew chapter 2, this group of men that came all the way to bend the knee before Jesus has captured the imagination of Christians from the very beginning. We've wondered, man, who are these individuals? Why did they come? What brought them here? What about the star told them to come here? There's so many things about this mystery. And so what we're doing is we're unpacking, we're peeling back the layers of the legend and getting down to the actual data in the Bible as to who these are. And here's what we are discovering and what we'll continue to discover the actual truth about who these individuals are is actually more amazing. Their story is more fantastic than the legends. Let me get you caught up as far as, far as what we discovered last week. We've got these magi. That's the word. Who are the wise men? Matthew uses the ancient Greek word for magi. It's magoi in the Greek. And so we say, okay, these are, this is not a group of kings. This is not just wise individuals. This is a specific group of people. This is an actual category of people. They were people that were from the east and advised kings. And so we said, okay, Matthew's, uh, Matthew's assuming that his audience is going to be reading the Old Testament scripture. That's, uh, they are in the process in Matthew's day of writing down the New Testament. They 
they had the Old Testament scripture. Does this word magi, this particular group of, of individuals in the East, are they ever referenced in the Old Testament? And we said, yes, the Magi, they are actually referenced in one book of the Bible, 10 times in four different chapters, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5. And they're always referenced in reference to Babylon. Now, there were Magi we know historically in some of the other kingdoms, like uh, Persia, but they're referenced in the biblical text in Babylon. That gives us a context then for who are these Magoi. Who are the Magi? What were they? And what we know historically, and also from the biblical account, is Magi were advisors to the kings, and they used dark arts, sorcery, witchcraft. They used those things to, to advise the kings. They would interpret dreams. They would dissect animals and look at their entrails. And they were astrologists. They would look up into the skies, they would see things happening among the stars and, and happening in the heavens, and they would interpret the meaning. So we know the Magoi, they're in Daniel, that gives us Babylon as a likely location, and the Babylonian Magi, they did indeed look up into the heavens at the stars, and uh, that, that confirms the Magi. That would mean that they were from the east, which is east in reference to Jerusalem, and they came and they met King Herod. That gets you caught up as to our, our study on who are these magi. But we still have so many questions. Why uh, are they in search for a king? They show up in Jerusalem. Okay, we, they're in search for a king. They bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why those gifts? Some of those gifts are kind of an obvious gift to give to a king. Some of them are very strange to give to a king. Also, in their conversation with Herod, the idea of a Christ, a Messiah, comes up. Where did they get this idea? Why did they worship him? There's so much more to this mystery uh, that, we have to, that we have to peel back the layers. But because we know of the biblical background, Matthew's using this term magi, and there's only one place in the Old Testament that that's used. Now we have a book to look at to find out more data about who these magi were and why did they come and why did they come in search for a king. So we're gonna take a look at the book of Daniel. I want you to open with me to Daniel chapter two. That's where we're gonna go with our study. I'm gonna put Daniel chapter two up here on the board because this is gonna end up being significant for us. Let me get Daniel two up here. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2, but let me get you uh, just caught up in what's going on in the book of Daniel. Um, in Daniel chapter 1, we talked about this a little bit last week, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego are their Babylonian names. Daniel is his Hebrew name. He was given Belteshazzar, as sometimes he's referred to as that. That was actually his Babylonian name. But we'll go with Daniel uh, for now. Daniel uh, was, and, and his three friends were trained in all the ways of Babylon. They were trained to be Magoi. They were trained to be Magi. They've got to figure out how do they be godly worshipers of Yahweh while operating in in Babylon, in Babylon, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace and going to sorcery school. They've got to navigate that difficulty. But Daniel became a Magi. Throughout the book of Daniel, we learn that he doesn't just become a Magi, he becomes 
the chief magi. And over time, as generations of kings pass, Daniel becomes not just the chief magi, a legendary magi. And as he's writing down what happened to him and the word that God gives him in the book of Daniel, it's not at all hard for us to imagine and to assume that future generations of magi had and read the writings of this chief magi, this legendary magi named Daniel, especially because of the moments that Daniel witnessed and was a part of in the history of Babylon and Persia. And we're going to look at one of those in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 1, we learn that Daniel becomes trained to be a magi along with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The very next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar needs his magi. He has a dream. Now in those times, they assumed that dreams like this had meaning. And the dream he had troubles him. It worries him. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like what it sounds like it's saying. So he calls his magi together. This would not be uncommon. He says, I need for you, magi, to interpret my dream. The magi say, absolutely, no problem. We went to the dream interpretation class. We're ready. Give us the dream. And he says this, not this time. I have to be so sure that you are getting like a divine oracle, a divine word. I got to be so sure that I'm not going to tell you the dream. First, you have to tell me the dream I had, and then I will know if you can work that miracle, then I'll know you're giving me the interpretation. The Magi start shifting uncomfortably like, oh, that's tricky, huh? We were going to just make something up about how amazing you were, but um, that adds a new wrinkle. Okay. And they say, (laughs) I mean, oh, king, there's none of us could do that. I mean, who could do that? And the king says this, if you cannot tell me what my dream was, I will have all of you torn limb from limb. If you know ancient Babylon, that's not a metaphor for something. That's literal. That is actual, that will be their literal, actual fate. And they knew that. And then they started to panic. Meanwhile, junior magi, freshman magi, Daniel, hears that he's about to get dismembered. And he says, guys, pray. Pray because I'm going to go before the king and I'm going to ask God to give me the dream and the interpretation. They began praying. Daniel goes before the king and says, uh, King, I believe God, the one true living God, which, by the way, you don't say to Nebuchadnezzar because he thinks he's God. In the next chapter, he'll demand to be worshipped. The one true living God, I believe, has given me your dream and its interpretation. Let's pick it up in verse 31. What was this so troubling dream? You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out 
by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. Nebuchadnezzar's asleep and he sees an image, a statue of a man. I think as we'll see, he saw a statue of himself. And the head of the statue was gold. The chest and arms were silver. The torso down to the thighs were bronze. And then the rest of the legs were iron with the feet at the bottom being started to mix with clay. And he has this, this, sees this image, and I want you to just trace from, from the top down of this image of a, of a man. It starts with the most precious of the metals, gold. It's pure. Gold is a, is a picture of eternity. It's a picture, because it doesn't tarnish. It's a, a picture of purity. It's a picture of value. It's a picture of glory. It's brilliant. Gold has always had those associations. It starts gold, but as it works down, the chest and the arms are silver. Still precious, but less so. Silver tarnishes. It's got more impurities. It, it actually um, erodes some over time. It, it degrades over time. But then the torso is bronze. It's even less valuable. It actually tarnishes even quicker. It's less pure. And then the bottom is iron. And while iron's the strongest, it also is the less pure, the least pure, and it also tarnishes the quickest. And at the very bottom, even the iron is beginning to get mixed with just dirt and clay. Something very, very soft. He sees this image. And then he sees a stone. And it says, the stone is cut out from a mountain. No human hand has cut this out. And the stone hits the statue and smashes all of it into tiny fragments. All four of the metals just just explode into shreds and flutter away like chaff from the wind. And that new, that rock begins to expand into a mountain so large it covers the entire map of the earth. That's his dream. And it unsettled Nebuchadnezzar. Now Daniel's going to give his interpretation. Let's pick it up in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold." Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron crush, that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." 
What does he say? He says, here's the interpretation. He says, you saw on, on this statue, the head of gold is you. This is probably what is so unsettling. I, I actually believe that Nebuchadnezzar thought he knew what the dream meant because it's a little bit obvious once you know the dream, which is why it unsettled him and is also why he didn't want to tell them what the dream was because he, he didn't want them to just give the most obvious interpretation. But it's pretty obvious. The head is of gold. It's a, it's a statue of him. The head is of gold. And he says, that's you and that's your kingdom, Babylon. He says, then the, the torso of the, the, or the shoulders and the arms is silver. That means that there's another kingdom rising up after you. In other words, Babylon's not going to last forever. It's about to be defeated in another power. Because you notice how he talked about how Nebuchadnezzar, he was, the, he was the most powerful man in all the world. I mean, he ruled over the known world. And he says, another kingdom, a second kingdom will rise up that will rule the world just with a little bit less glory. And then a third kingdom will rise up. And it'll be even a little bit less. And then a fourth kingdom will rise up to rule the world. And that will be of iron. It's like this. We've got to put this statue up here. Nebuchadnezzar, what did he see? He saw a, a, a statue of himself with different, uh, different metals all the way down. Looks like Nebuchadnezzar works out a little bit. I think he does CrossFit, okay, as I look at this picture. Put him on, the, on, on here as well. He saw this statue of him, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and what Daniel says is each of those are different kingdoms. Now, here's what you've got to know. This right here, this was bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. Because kings saw themselves as ruling forever. In Daniel chapter 3, and this was not an uncommon thing to say to a king. They would say, oh king, live forever. Kings saw themselves as having kind of an eternality, a divinity about them. They were kind of godlike. They expected their reign to be forever. They certainly expected that they were setting up a kingdom that could never be toppled. That's what everyone was hoping, hoping from their king. So to find out like, yeah, Babylon's not going to be around forever. And very quickly, it's going to be toppled. It's bad news to tell Nebuchadnezzar. Let's see what else it says, because there's something about another kingdom Let's pick it up in verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. He says, look, there are going to be three different kingdoms. There's going to be Babylon, then another worldwide kingdom, then another worldwide kingdom, then another worldwide kingdom. And in, the, in this time... When this kingdom 
is starting to get shaky. It's starting to mix together and it's, and it's going to start to get shaky. It is during the era of those kings, it says, that another kingdom will be established. This will be God's kingdom and it will have no end. It's an eternal kingdom. That's what's going to happen next, Nebuchadnezzar. So if we kept reading, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar bows before Daniel, junior magi, makes him his right-hand man. He rules over Babylon and makes him the chief over all of the magi and honors Daniel because, I mean, he can't deny it. Daniel's not just making up this interpretation. God gave him the dream too. Nebuchadnezzar can't deny it. But then in chapter 3, he does this. I'm going to read you one verse. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of what? An image of gold. Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura and the province of Babylon. What does Nebuchadnezzar think about this prophecy? He says, okay, I got to give you credit. You did know my dream, but I don't think so. And in defiance to the word of God, he builds a statue of only gold. And he sets it up. It's massive. And what will happen next in chapter 3 is he will demand that everyone bows down and worships his image, his golden image of him. What is he saying? He's saying, no, 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 no. My kingdom will never end. My glory will never end. I'm still the head of gold, but my glory will be for all time. My kingdom will be for all time. My legacy will be for all time. My fame will be for all time. My rule will extend for all time. No one is going to topple me. So how did it play out for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, what the Magoi at the time of Jesus would have known is that at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's son, the Medo-Persian Empire came to power and conquered Babylon. And one of the most dramatic overthrows in all of history. They did it in a night. The Persians overthrew Babylon. And they were a worldwide power, the Persian Empire. And then a couple hundred years later, a man by the name of Alexander the Great rose up and establish a third worldwide kingdom. The, Greek, the, the kingdom of Greece extended throughout the entire known world, even beyond the, the Persian Empire. And then a couple hundred years later, a new empire overthrew the Greeks. It was the Roman Empire. And even though they were strong and they crushed down their enemies, there was something very unstable about that fourth worldwide, the fourth and final worldwide empire. And it's during that empire, it's during that Roman empire that God sent one named Jesus who stood before a Roman ruler. And that ruler named Pilate 
asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. The kingdom that I am carving out is not cut by human hands, in other words. And it's a kingdom that goes into every kingdom. It spreads to the ends of the earth. He sends out his disciples to the ends of the earth declaring what they've witnessed about Jesus, who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. See, what do the Magi have? Here's what the Magi had. The Magi had Daniel 2. Daniel 2 told them of what was going to transpire. And the Magi, through the generations, they saw, okay, here's another empire, then another empire, then another empire. And sometime within this fourth empire, at some time, we should be watching for a what? A king. They knew to be watching for a king, not just any king. I mean, they're not going to travel from the east just because of the birth of a king. I mean, it's going to be a very certain king. Because, I mean, there are kings born all the time. Why not go to Rome? Why not just wait around Rome and just see which future kings? No, they were waiting for a promised king in that era. They knew to watch for a king, and they knew to bring that king gold. Now, hang on to that thought for a second. Let's just... Um, tie this all together. Um, let's start with, let's start here in, in Daniel chapter 2. We know from Daniel chapter 2, it has the Magi in it. We know that the Magi knew this time period that they're supposed to be watching for, um, with the statue. They knew to watch, they knew what kingdom to be watching for an even greater king. They knew to be looking for a king, and then they knew to give that king Gold. Why gold? Let's talk about that just for a second. They brought this king a gift. Now, for starters, um, you never go and stand before a, a, a king empty-handed. I mean, we know that. If you're invited over to someone's house, you say, hey, um, can I bring something? Or if you're a guest somewhere, maybe they're, they're an acquaintance, maybe you, you bring something as a, as a gift. But that goes back into antiquity. You never stood before a king without a gift. In fact, even in modern times, when you stand before dignitaries, you bring a gift. Um, there are some really interesting gifts that our U.S. presidents have been given uh, over time. For example, um, Andrew Jackson, when he became president, they gave him a wheel of cheese. A group gave him a wheel of cheese. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. What's more interesting is that the wheel of cheese weighed over a thousand pounds. And they set it up in the White House on display, um, not in the refrigerator for some reason, but they put it on display for a while and then eventually opened it to the public to come and eat the cheese, which they did all consume the cheese. However, according to legend, the smell of that cheese lingered in the White House for months afterwards, okay? Abraham Lincoln, um, a group gave him live elephants. That was one of the gifts that Abraham Lincoln was given. Um, Truman was given a bowling alley. I don't know how you give a bowling alley, but they gave him a bowling alley. They put it in the White House. Why did they give him a bowling alley? Was it because Truman loved to bowl? No. 
He hadn't bowled since he was 19 years old. He did like one ceremonial bowl, and then his White House staffers started a bowling league, and they used it for the rest of that tenure. It's common when you come before a dignitary to bring a gift, you always show up before a king or a queen with absolute authority. When you're walking in their presence, they could kill you for fun. You always bring a gift. Now, why did they specifically, one of their gifts was gold. This is a very common gift. Oh boy, I've lost some of the gold. Okay, that's, it's gone forever. Okay, um, they, it is a very common gift to give to a king. I'm gonna put this away before I lose any more. Um, this is a common gift to give to a king. In fact, the Queen of Sheba, one of the gifts that it records, actually the first gift it records that she brought to Solomon is she brought him an obscene amount of gold. It's not uncommon to bring gold before a king. But for these wise men, for these magi, it's the gift they had to bring him. Because the king they originally served under years ago thought he was the golden king. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the eternal king whose kingdom would have no end. And God said, no, no, you're not the eternal king. You're not the golden king. You're not the, the king whose kingdom and influence will last forever. That is not you. And in dramatic fashion, over the next, uh, next hundreds of years, that was displayed. But they knew to be watching for that one king who was indeed a king whose reign would last forever. The king that is of all the glory, the king that's of all value, the king that's of all treasure, the king that cannot tarnish, the most pure king, the king whose kingdom will be established forever. They knew to be looking for a king. They knew to look for the king who would be the most representative of gold. They knew to be looking for the king that would, be, would establish an eternal kingdom. And they found him in Bethlehem when they knelt before King Jesus. You know, there's so much more in this mystery. What about the frankincense? What about the myrrh? Why did they worship him? Where did the idea that he was some kind of Messiah? There's so much more to this that we'll, we'll pick it up next week. But what this, for starters, reminds us of who Jesus is. He's a king. A king that is going to transform all of history. Of course, this is not any king. Of course they would travel to see this particular king, the king, the eternal king. Now, you know, for, for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you love to think about Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords. You love to think of Jesus like that. But you know, it's actually somewhat in our, our culture, it's sometimes it's challenging to understand what that means in our relationship to Jesus. Because we are not accustomed to growing up in a, a monarchy, especially not an absolute monarchy. We enjoy freedoms in our country. We, are, we enjoy having freedom. We, uh, we elect 
um, politicians and they are, there's accountability built in and we, in our country, there are many who've defended our freedom so that we can have freedoms of things like personal worship and that is a tremendous privilege that we have in our country to have the freedoms that we do. And the greatest of those freedoms is that we have freedom to worship and serve our king freely. But Christians throughout history, whether or not they had that freedom, they still made Jesus their king. But for us who are not accustomed with what does it mean to have a king, we have to reorient our relationship a little bit with what it means for Jesus to be king of kings. That's easy to say. It's easy to say, yeah, Jesus is the king. He sits on the throne. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. What does that mean? If I'm calling myself a Christian, if I'm saying Jesus is my Lord, if I'm saying I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm saying I'm following Jesus the king. He's not a symbolic king. He is the legitimate, literal king over the universe. His reign is over all of the galaxies, over, over throughout the, the billions of light years that is the universe. That is his domain that he is actively and effectively and totally ruling over. He is a king. He's not like a king. I'm not making him a king. He is the king on the throne. And if I'm saying I believe Jesus, I'm saying I am believing that he is the king. So then how do we reorient our lives to understanding that we have a king? Here's a couple thoughts for you. First, what does it mean to have a king? If you have a king, there is unrivaled allegiance to that king. That is the king that rules over your life and there is no other. No one shares that throne. There's no one else that I look to. I don't say, I, I serve Jesus and I also serve this. I serve Jesus and I serve myself. I serve Jesus and I serve uh, this person. That is, Jesus is first. The king is first over everything. The king is before um, my, my boss. The king is before my leader. The king is before my spouse. The king is before my children. I have an unrivaled allegiance to my king. That's what it means to have a king. The second thing, what does it mean to have a king? It's unconditional obedience. If you, had a, if you have a king and the king asks you to give your life you do that instantaneously on behalf of that king. That's what kings would often ask people to go into battle, knowing they would lose their life for their king. Having a king means there will be unconditional obedience. That means that there is nothing that your king can ask of you to do. If he's your king, then we obey no matter what. Unconditional obedience to our king. If you believe in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, then that means like, okay, it doesn't mean I follow Jesus until we come up. Well, I'm not really sure about this. I'm going to pick and choose what Jesus said. I'm going to take this part of the Bible and leave this part out. I, I like this, but I don't like this. I'm going to come get you, Jesus, when I need you. Like right now, I really need you. Like I'm doing fine on my, on my own, but I'll come get you, King, when I need your help. No, no. It's unconditional obedience. King Jesus, how can I serve you today? That's what it means to have a king. To have a king... It means, the third thing is unconquerable hope. I want you to imagine, if you, have, uh, if you have allegiance to that king and loyalty to that king, and if you have obedience to that king, 
that means the way that everything rises and falls for your existence based on how that king rules. You better hope it's a good king. All of your hope is wrapped up in that one king. And the last one is this, and I want to end on this point. What does it mean to have a king? It's unceasing esteem. What do I mean by that? If you serve a king, if you're a servant in that king's court or that king's palace, then your entire existence is to bring that king glory. It's to magnify that king and his reign. And maybe, off, maybe we are so unaccustomed to that dynamic of having a king that we forget and we, and we can follow, we say we follow Jesus, but we're living for our own glory. But that's not what it means to have a king. What it means is that I bring him all glory. My life is not about me making a name for myself. It's not about me looking good. It's not about me trying to, to craft my image. My life is to bring glory to my king, King Jesus. So you say, okay, I, man, I, I want to rearrange my life. I want to have Jesus as my king. What do I do? You know, there's one clear, most obvious outflow of the story of the Magi who come and, and, and come to Jesus. There is one most obvious outflow, and I want to tell you why it's so significant. One of the most clear application points that we could walk out. What do we learn? God, what do you want us to learn from this? If you know who Jesus is, Come before him and don't come before the king empty-handed. If there's one clear application of the visit of the wise men, it's bring gifts before your king. Because he needs them? Is he the king of a poor kingdom? No, he is cattle on a thousand hills. We bring these as offerings before the king. But let me tell you why this is so significant. Often what we do with our resources is we use our resources to promote our own image and glory. It's one of the fundamental ways humanity, humanity uses our treasures. We use our treasures because in the, in the things that we wear and the things that we have and the things that we buy and the places we live and the things that we drive and the way we dress ourselves up, we're projecting an image. We have a, a, a glory that we're trying to create about ourselves. But there's something that is so disruptive to that trap about bringing gifts to the, and, and offering them before the Lord. You know, often we think about generosity and we think about generosity of furthering the mission and the kingdom of God, and that is true. But another fundamental and very important aspect of generosity in your own life is doing it from a place of worship. Because getting on that hamster wheel of using my treasures to promote my own glory so that I look a certain way, I'm considered a certain way, I'm seen as beautiful, or I'm seen as successful, or I'm seen as I've made it, or I'm seen as, as whatever it may be. Using my resources to craft my image is making myself an image of gold. And that hamster wheel is absolutely soul-crushing. 
It destroys our lives. It leaves us locked on the treadmill of materialism, unable to get off. Because there's always a new style. There's always an, uh, a new addition. There's, there's always a new upgrade. There's always something new. There's always someone that, has, that looks better, has something newer, has something nicer. And we're always trying to keep up to bring ourselves glory. And from his mercy, what our king has done is he's reminded us that your life is for the glory of your king. And when we come before the king and we don't come empty-handed, when we come and bring gifts to the king, it disrupts that cycle of using our treasures for our own glory. And we're using it that Jesus may be brought glory. We do it out of our worship before God. We do it for the sake of our own souls. That's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what he said? Don't worry about your life, what you'll wear. Isn't your life more than those things that you have and accumulate? So store up your treasures in heaven where it can never, never be destroyed. Why? It's part of an eternal kingdom. And he says this, in speaking about glory, he says this, look at the lilies of the field. Even Solomon, King Solomon, wasn't as resplendent as glory, as glorious as the flowers and lilies of the field. And it's your father who clothes those lilies. You know, in this season, we give gifts to each other as we should. And really the Magi is one of the reasons we do that tradition. We give gifts to each other. But it's also a season that it's tempting to get caught up and all the stuff we use to build our image and our own glory. It's an important time to use our generosity as worship before our king. Do it for your own soul. And do it because it's an important step. It's easy to say Jesus is my king. But what would it look like if you realized he's not a symbolic king, he's the literal king of the universe and live your life like that. Why do you wanna make him your king? Some of you are like, look, I'm not sure I wanna, I hear what you're saying and I take it at face value. I'm not sure I'm ready for that yet. I'm not sure I'm ready to make Jesus my king. I like ruling my own life. Why would I want Jesus as my king? You could only say that if you didn't know how good he is. Remember who your king is? All the glory that was due him. All the glory that he had. But your king, King Jesus, put it all aside and he comes all the way down to earth. And he becomes like us. He walks in our shoes. He suffers like, like we suffer. He's, he's humiliated and rejected and tortured and he dies on the cross. Why? He did it for us. That's the kind of king that you serve. He has love like that where he'll lay all the glory, his very life aside. You're not giving all of yourself to a king. You're not giving him all the glory so he can just expend it on himself. He's already expended all of it on you. 
so that he can have you reign with him for eternity. That is who your king is. He did all of that. He's, that is how loving your king is. That is how good your king is. He did all of that to bring about justice. That's how just your king is. And how powerful is your king? He's unstoppable, church. He says the gates of hell is not going to stand against the kingdom he set up. How do you know he's that powerful? Because your king defeated death itself. Even death will not lay claim to your life. That is how powerful your king is. How could you not want to make him your king? Make him your king. Live like he is the king of kings that he is. Let me lead us in prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to speak to those of you who are here and you're saying, look, I'm not sure I'm ready to make Jesus my king. I, I accept what you're saying that to follow Jesus means to accept him as my, as my king. And I like ruling my life. There's things that I think Jesus might ask me to do and I don't want to do that. I, I want to maintain control. But isn't trying to rule your life exhausting? Like I'm trying to bear it up on my shoulders, but there's one that's saying, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And the yoke, my yoke, is easy, my burden's light, just come to me. He's saying, I will take the burdens of your life. Cast them on me. Let me rule your life. Give your life to Jesus. Don't just say that religiously you're Christian. Make Jesus your king. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. And I want to ask you, with everyone's heads bowed, everyone's eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, today, I'm not just going to say in an empty way, that I'm a Christian. Today, I'm making Jesus my king. If that's you, I want, what I want you to do is I want you to slip your hand in the air. No one's looking around. Today, amen. Praise God. If you're here or you're at Cooper City, you're watching online, just slip your hand in the, in the air and say, today, Jesus is my king. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Today, you say, it's the, today's the day. Jesus becomes my king. I serve him unconditionally. Just slip your hand in the air. Today's the day. Amen. Amen. For those of you who are making Jesus your king, let me lead you in this prayer. Say this. Say, Jesus, silently in your heart, make this your prayer. Say, Jesus, I make you my king. I serve you unconditionally. You saved my soul for eternity, and I serve you with all of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, there were those here in our midst that put their faith in Jesus and made him their king today. Can we encourage them? Can we celebrate that? Praise God. Praise God. Best move you've ever made. Best decision. And so here's what I want you to, want to ask you to do. If those of you watching online, go to cityrev.org slash faith. Let us know so we can celebrate with you and mail you a Bible. Those of you who are here, just check off the box on your Get Connected card that you, are, you follow Jesus for the first time. Put that in the offering box as you leave. We'll mail you a Bible. Or even better, in the front lobby, take that to the guest services, and we will give you a Bible. Church, we're going to close with a song. 
It's all about one thing. Our lives amount to one thing. It's just about Jesus. Would you stand with me as we close? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.